Welcome to another episode of the Compass Equip podcast. Here at Compass Bible Church, we exist to make disciples of Jesus Christ by reaching people for Christ, teaching people to be like Christ, and training people to serve Christ. And everything we do here at Compass, including this podcast, is to fulfill the mission of reaching, teaching, and training. Well, here we are at our second to last sermon in our Sermon on the Mount series, The, Cult- the Countercultural Kingdom. And this second to last sermon was entitled False Converts, as Jesus lets us know here in Matthew 7, verses 21 through 23, that there is going to be people who are going to come to Christ there on the day of judgment, and they're going to say, Lord, Lord, and he's going to say, I never knew you. There's going to be people who think that they're saved, who it turns out that they're not. Here in that text, let me go ahead and read it for you out of the English Standard Version of our Bibles. There in Matthew 7, starting in verse 21, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. And so I think as we read that text, it should be a a sober reminder of uh, the fact that there are uh, going to be people, and there are people even today, who believe something that isn't true about themselves. And uh, we need to be able to, as Scripture allows us to, uh, in a great way, to be able to confirm uh, uh, the assurance of our faith. And even as this text helps us know, and the main preaching point of this sermon is that spirit-empowered obedience to God and His will, not mere professions nor fervent religious activity, has always been the mark of an authentic relationship with Christ. And that's what we see here in the text is not a need of familiarity or a profession that I, I believe something to be true about me or all these mark uh, checking the, the boxes of all this religious activity that saves me, but it's that intimate relationship with Christ so that when we come before Him, uh, he doesn't say, I never knew you. He says, well done, my good and faithful servant. Come into the kingdom that I have prepared beforehand for you uh, and those who follow me as the children of God. And so uh, this, uh, this text found itself fleshed out in three teaching points. Number one, we need to have a biblical view of professions of faith because on the one hand, professions of faith are biblical. Uh, they are good and necessary uh, in one's outward uh, profession, one's outward display of the salvation that they have. Biblical professions are necessary. Uh, but even as we read in the text that professing something that is true about Christ does not equate one's salvation. And so we need to have a biblical view because, yes, they're necessary. Uh, but even as we see in the text and other texts in Scripture, uh, we can say something and it can be true, but it doesn't actually describe the nature of my position in Christ. And so we got to have a biblical view of professions of faith. We want to encourage them, but we want to be uh, discerning about professions of faith. And uh, we're going we're gonna to do that as best we can. We're flawed humans. Uh, none of us is perfect. None of us uh, can know the heart of man but God alone. But the Scripture still teaches us that we need to un- understand that there are professions of faith that are not uh, that are not effectual, that are not valid, and uh, we want to be humble, but we also want to be discerning to make sure we have a biblical view of professions of faith. Number two, we want to recognize that saving faith produces genuine obedience. You know, this is one of those key parts of having a biblical view of professions of faith. If I have a profession of faith, then it is necessarily, if it's saving faith, it's going to produce genuine obedience. It's not going to produce perfection 
It's going to produce genuine and consistent obedience to God, and it's going to produce a greater conviction of my sin and when I fall short. So all of those things, you call them works, you call them obedience. Uh, That's faith, working through obedience, is a key indicator of the validity of a profession of faith. Um, I think even as you you look uh, in the in the Gospels, I, b- I believe it's uh, Matthew Matthew thirteen, the parable of the sower even talks about you know there are these four soils and all four of them in one way or the other hear the gospel, but it's how they responded to the gospel and then not only just how they responded but the faithfulness that it produced in them and we see in, in one example uh, n- there was no there was no uh, profession of faith, nor were there any, is there any faithfulness after that. But you see the two middle seeds there in, uh, in 13, that there was some kind of not only a profession, but also an immediate uh, short uh, span of obedience and faithfulness, but it, it scorched out and, and it stopped, it burned out very quickly. Uh, and you have other ones who they were faithful for a while, but the cares of the world took them away. And that's why at some point, even professions of faith that do, you see a, a short span of obedience, even in scriptures, are going to say uh, that would not indicate saving faith. I mean, the, the last soil that you see there in verse 8 that fell on the good ground, they're the ones who produce grain a hundredfold, sixtyfold, some thirtyfold. So even there, I love that because they were saying, okay, even saving faith it doesn't produce the same uh, uh, in everyone. Some people are a hundredfold, some are 60, some are 30. Uh, but the fact is that we're all going to follow God in obedience, and it isn't going to be short-lived. It's going to be a lifelong uh, submission to uh, Jesus as Lord. And so I hope uh, that helps you even as we begin thinking about this more and more through our life groups this week. But we got to recognize that saving faith produces genuine obedience. But we also need to recognize the the third point that we need to admit that works outside of saving faith are inadequate. Like there is nothing that we can do. We see that even in the text of saying we're gonna we prophesy in your name, we cast out demons, we did many mighty works in your name. Uh, but Jesus said that's not gonna be enough for you to be in my family. Our works are inadequate apart from saving faith, and that's why we can look at texts like uh, we did in Ephesians two eight through ten. It is uh, by faith alone that we are saved apart from works, that no one can boast. Uh, but there's also, in that saving faith, after that, God has has created us as his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works that he's prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And so it's keeping the works and the faith in the right order because we understand if we put those out of order, there is no work outside of saving faith that is adequate for admittance into the family of God. However, as, as I have saving faith, there are going to be works in my life uh, that are going to be produced by genuine obedience to the will of God in my life. And that's where you see verses 21 through 23 in Matthew 7 coming alive because we're saying it's not just professing something. Uh, it's saying I'm, gonna, I'm doing the will of my Father, and we can only do the will of Father, the will of the Father if we had spirit-empowered obedience to God. So it isn't then in verse 22 those works that save me, but it's the faith in Christ alone to save me. And then that faith that saves, that is alone, doesn't remain alone, and is then accompanied by genuine obedience. So I hope that's helpful for you guys um, as we kind of give a little bit of an overview of the sermon. But now what I'd love to do is I'd love for us to jump into the questions that you guys submitted. I always love when you guys submit questions. 
that we can go over because there's a chance and odds are if you ask the question, somebody else may have the same question. So this is a wonderful opportunity for us to look at these questions and ask, what does the Bible say about that? And so let's jump in. First question is, how do you differentiate between obedience due to salvation and transformation and obedience due to legalism? In other words, how do I know my obedience is due to my faith versus due to checking off a box? Well, this is a really good question. People ask this frequently in our culture, and I think one of the important aspects of uh, this question you have to answer first is, how do you define legalism? What is legalism? Uh, legalism is uh, the outworking of point number three in our sermon is that a, somebody who is legalistic is going to say that it's your works that are going to save you. I, I think of things like, like the Catholic Church is a good example of this. You're going to have to work your way. There is some grace infused in your works that make them uh, capable of being part of what saves you. I mean, that's legalistic, right? That you're going to have to work it's, it, it, and there may be some grace, and that's what that's what the Catholic Church would say. There's grace peppered in there that allows you to actually have you know faith that's clean or pure. But you're going to have to work your way all the way uh, to the day you die, and then even at that point, you're going to have to spend some time in, in purgatory. Odds are you're going to spend some time in purgatory to get the rest of those sins washed away because you, uh, although your works had to get you at least to that point. Uh, you're going to have to go to purgatory and get those things taken care of, those sins, before you could ever go and to be with the Father. And, I mean, that's legalism. I mean, that's a really good example of legalism, is saying that you're going, your works are that to which gets you into the presence of the Father. And uh, what we're going to say is that's actually, that's not a biblical view of obedience. Obedience is that which is produced in me uh, by saving faith. So I'm going to uh, I trust in Christ. I turn from my sins. I trust in Christ. He is going to save me by, by by the faith that I have in the person and work of Christ. And then through that, that transformation is then me trusting that Christ is going to make me a workman for him to walk in the good works that he has prepared for me beforehand. And I love that. It's, you know, how much are good works to play in the life of the Christian? Well, so much so that before you were ever saved, before you ever loved God, God had prepared for those that he had called to himself already the path of good works for them to walk in from here into eternity. And so I just think about that in the scheme of what part does good works play in? Such a place that God prepared them beforehand that you would walk in them faithfully. And so what we can't say is, well, I'm saved by by uh, grace through faith, therefore obedience is no not a part of not a part of it. And we're going to say that's a, that's an unbiblical view, uh, because if you read all of the the New Testament epistles uh, after after the Gospels, they're all calling uh, the followers of Christ to obedience. They're telling them to put off sin and put on righteousness. They're telling them to walk away from the sin that so easily entangled us and run the race that's set before us. And so all that is calling us to consistent obedience. And there are even these passages in the New Testament that are called, we call them and entitled them, the warning passages. Are these kind of passages that, that seem like you could lose your salvation? And, and they're, they're called that uh, because they're really scary to listen to. Uh, but what m some of those passages do, and what I hope they do to you, is they show you, wow, there is something about obedience here that is going to show us that we can't just say something and then can walk away from Christ and still think that we're saved. Because a genuine person, a genuinely saved person, would read one of those warning texts and do a, a one or two things, right? They're going to say, oof, 
I don't, I don't, I don't want that to characterize me. And that spirit that is in them is going to use that warning passes to effectuate faithful and obedience to them. And they're going to say, okay, I need to reject this sin. I need to follow Christ. That was a great reminder of this, that warning of uh, that text saying that Christians don't do that. Christians don't walk away from Christ. Uh, and, uh, or, or it's going to, uh, on, on the other hand, uh, I'm sure it could do a number of other things, but for the non-Christian uh, or, or somebody who doesn't understand the text, they're just going to say, then who can be saved, right? I mean, but I think for the Christian, a warning passage is a, is a great example of the effectual work of the Holy Spirit to, for us to look at the text of Scripture and say it calls us to obedience, not legalism, but the obedience that is wrought in me by the power of the Holy Spirit. I hope that helps. Uh, you know, and we say, how does it, you know, and you, you even ask there, uh, you know, due to my faith versus due to checking off a box. Well, you know, yes, checking off a box is, is that kind of uh, that that uh, literary example that we use as saying, oh, it's just something that that I've got to do. There is a is a there is a part that uh, when we think about even our spiritual disciplines. Well, what I'm going to do every day? I'm going to read my Bible. Okay, what I'm going to do every day? I'm going to I'm going to pray to the Lord. I'm, I'm going to make sure that I'm faithfully giving to my local church and attending on the weekends and making sure that I am. Uh, in a life group and serving and okay, yeah, I mean, there's a list of things there, uh, but the the question is, don't we have that in every area that we have true love and care and concern? When you have children, I mean, <laughs> don't we have a a list of things every day? I need to feed my child. I need to care for my child. I need to drop them off at school. I need to change their diapers when they need their diapers changed. I need to pick them up from school. And we're going to say, well, I can't ch- I can't have this checklist. If I really love my children, they're just going to have to figure out that I love them and I'm taking care of them and I'm, and I'm following obediently in the stewardship that I have over them without me having to do all these things for them. And we're going to say, well, that's nonsense, right? I mean, and so if we're going to say, yes, I need a checklist uh, and, I, you know, it's even hard to even think about that. It's like, yeah, I mean, I think the checklists are great uh, to help me take stock of, of what, what am I doing uh, to express my love for the Lord? What am I doing to express my love for my, my children? But if we're just going to, I think, even with the heart of this question, if I'm going to say, well, I'm really kind of married to this checklist uh, because that's how I'm going to show God how I love him, or that's how I'm going to prove that I can be with God because of this checklist. I think that's, that's where legalism comes in. It's like, you know, if I'm going to take that checklist with me to heaven and God's going to say, why do, why do you get to come into heaven? And you show him that checklist, that's legalism. And so we're not going to say having a checklist is a bad thing uh, because it's a great way to take stock of what I'm doing in my life that requires me to be faithful. But legalism is then saying it's not only that I have a checklist, but that I have that checklist as proof of uh, standing before God and saying, why do, I, why do you get into my heaven? And we're going to say the checklist. Well, the person who is just obedient because they're saved and transformed is going to say simply because Christ has offered me the free gift of salvation through his grace and my faith and trust that I, as I stand before you in this very moment, that my sins would be absorbed through the punishment that was given on Christ. So you, so you see, that's, that's really, I think, the difference. hope that helps uh, you think through uh, your question. The second question here is, can you ex- please expand a little on the Greek word doulos? And I didn't really use the word doulos in either of the sermons, but I assume just because I talked a bit about the word kurios, which means uh, which means Lord or Master, I, so then you have this uh, relationship between 
chaos uh, and doulos, which I, I assume that's why the question was asked. And uh, I mean, I have a little explanation. Uh, in in the, New, the New Testament, we have this word doulos, which means slave. It's, it's rendered clearly slave. If you have an ESV like I have, one of the things that the ESV does is it takes the word doulos, which is actually in the New Testament quite a few times. And depending on uh, of the the context in the ESV, sometimes the word will be rendered uh, bond servant or servant or slave. And I think those are the, the main three. Uh, and so sometimes it's hard for us in the English to know when the word doulos is being used because sometimes we render it in different words. If you use, I think if you use the NASB or the new LSB, it always translate the wor- translates the, do- the word do loss into slave, which I personally like. Uh, and the reason why I can assume you want to expand a little bit on the Greek word do loss is because if we say that the, the that Christ is our master, like kurios, our Lord, then that means that we do have this, as as Jesus often uses different kinds of relationships that, that we have with our God, that he is our shepherd. That means we're sheep, which, you know, some of us like to talk about sheep, but, you know, sheep biblically are called sheep because they need help. They need protection. They're not very intelligent beings. And so uh, with that being said, you know, we're sheep. He is our shepherd. Uh, we see in Scripture that he is our groom. He is the groom, the bridegroom, and we are the bride. Uh, we see that he is a father and we are children. Well, one of those other examples that we see in the New Testament is he is the master and we are the slave, which means if he's the master and we're the slave, that means he's in total control and we submit ourselves to him as Lord, which means he gets to say what we do, when we do it, how we do it. Now, and I know to some people that's, you know, particularly living here uh, in the West, here in America, you're like, well, that just sounds like, uh, that just sounds really, really bad. Well, that's why the ESV uh, often doesn't use the word slave, but uses the word bondservant, because we like to read our own cultural understanding of slave into the Bible when, uh, I've, I've actually had sermons on this where I talk a little bit about this, uh, that we want to read our own understanding into slave when that really wasn't the types of relationships you had, particularly in the time of the Roman Empire, where I believe, if I can remember correctly, 90% of the population of Rome either was or had been in slavery. And so it was quite a much more pervasive thing, and it was a lot less, in most cases, aggressive, uh, and uh, there were a lot of rights that slaves had that, you know, antebellum slavery didn't have there uh, here in America. It wasn't something that anybody would love to have done, but it was something that people did in the, the time of the first century, uh, they would actually sell themselves and work for uh, indentured servitude, or they would work so that they could feed their families. And so anyway, all that being said, I just think maybe a little bit of that background would help uh, us understand the word doulos and its usage in the New Testament. There is a, John MacArthur actually has a book called Slave, which talks about that word doulos throughout the usage of the Bible. It may be helpful for you to embark a little more into that study. The next question, the third question here is, in Matthew 7... The deceived person states, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? Can you provide an example of a deceived person successfully casting out a demon? If they are able to successfully cast out a demon in Jesus' name, are the unsaved also able to prophesy successfully? I I gave you a pretty good example, I think, in Acts 19, where the itinerant Jewish exorcists were actually going and invoking the name of Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you on behalf of Jesus, whom Paul proclaims uh, to, to be removed from the person. And so you see even there that people who were false converts were uh, taking the name of Christ and and uh, casting 
uh, demons out of people. And then again, you see it in, in the Gospels where uh, the, uh, the apostles are saying, hey, Jesus, there were people out there who were, who were uh, casting out demons in your name, and we stopped them. And Jesus said, well, don't stop them, because anyone who is against us is for us, which, again, that takes take a lot more time to get into what Jesus meant by that. But I mean, there were definitely people who were not following Jesus, who were yet using the name of Jesus to cast out demons and people. Um, and then you ask, are they able to successfully prophesy? And I'm going to say, yeah. I mean, if you, I mean, look in Matthew 24, the time to come in the tribulations, the tribulation period. I mean, there's going to be false prophets who are going to come and they're going to perform. I mean, this is what it says in chapter 24, verse 24. For false Christ and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. And so we see that there are uh, people throughout history who uh, have been able to and will be able to do many mighty works and signs by the power of, of, of Satan uh, to do things to mislead people. And so well, that's why I think it's really important that we don't just equate somebody's mighty works with salvation or, or mighty power from God, uh, because we see throughout Scripture examples of uh, people uh, who are doing many mighty works uh, that are actually not empowered by God, but of Satan. And that we need to be careful to think uh, rightly about that. Uh, the fourth question here is, last week you mentioned that false teachers do not preach the narrow way. And today you said that the last thing we want to do is give false assurance. It seems that most churches in the local area don't teach the narrow way or believe it, but are very quiet about it, as well as give everyone who names Jesus assurance of faith. What are we to think about these churches? Well, one thing that I can't say, because I've not been to every single church here in our local area, is whether or not that's true about all the churches or most of the churches in our area. But I can... Uh, I, I can... Uh, with it with some assurance say there are churches that that do match the description that you're saying here uh and and what are we to think about these churches well i think what what are the, one of the main things i even talked about i believe last week was we got to make sure each each individual has to make sure they are members of a bible teaching church that teaches doctrine in accordance with scripture and uh, i think if we do that that's the best thing we can personally do uh, and I, because I think maybe on the other end of the spectrum that we, I mean, you might think, well, we need to go out there and we need to go, you know, uh, tell all these churches that they got to stop preaching or they need to, they need to change the way. Which, you know, I'm not going to say there isn't a place uh, to go and call out leadership in those churches. Uh, but I do know this for sure, that you have to be able to have confidence in the teaching of your church. And so I think that as you keep, I even in your own right, this commitment to saying, I want to sit under biblical teaching, and I want to make sure that we have a biblical view of assurance, and I want to make sure that this church is teaching a biblical gospel. So what are we to think about these churches? I think one of the main things you need to do is make sure that you are going to a church that you have confidence in. Uh, and I think that as you're giving people uh, as you're giving people wisdom and counsel on uh, finding a, a good church, I think that you need to help steer them towards churches that you have confidence are preaching a biblical gospel. And uh, I think that you should also keep uh, dissuade people who ask to, you know, to uh, to go to churches that you don't think would be helpful. And I don't mean that you think based upon your own uh, based your own uh, subjective standards, but I mean, uh, can you point out biblically why you think that someone should choose a church over another church? Because again, you just do not want to be uh, you do not want to be uh, the church in town. Uh, 
that's crying wolf about all the other churches in town. Like I personally, I have really good pastoral friends in this community that I know for a fact are preaching the biblical gospel and preaching faithfully in scripture. And I think uh, for those of us who just hear and think about uh, churches and we just make blanket statements that there are no great churches in our area are, are being disingenuine to the work of God in this community. So I want to ins- make sure that we're going to be uh, genuine and the fact that there are going to be churches that aren't doing this, and there's a lot of them, and I think that's going to continue to grow, those kind of churches that aren't being faithful to the Word of God. But I think that we wouldn't be kind to the goodness of God uh, to say that, uh, that there aren't churches here that are doing that. And I think w- uh, one of the things that we could do is we could get to know those churches, know those pastors, know people who go to those churches, so that we can create that kind of networking and that kind of relationship like I have with some of the pastors in our community, that you can have some churches that you would say, I would highly encourage you to go to, you know, like, and I think of it, and I'd highly encourage people who are looking, who may not come to our church, go to Redemption Bible Church. That'd be a wonderful church to go to. Maybe you live a little bit further uh, uh, south um, of town, you know, go to Believer's Fellowship down there uh, near Live Oak in San Antonio. And, you know, there's just other churches that you can go to. And I, I there's a, a whole lot of them that I could name drop in this area that I can tell you for sure they're going to be preaching you a biblical message. And so I think those are some helpful uh, bits of counsel that would help you think rightly about how do we go about giving wisdom to people. Here's a, the next question here is, uh, I would love to know some ways to approach a conversation with someone who claims to be saved but shows no fruit of salvation in their life. I want to call them out lovingly, but I feel like this person will feel judged and react badly because she thinks and says she is a Christian. Thank you so much for any advice. Well, uh, you know, one of the things that I think would make this most helpful is if there is at least some kind of uh, agreement of having the conversation uh, not that I'm saying you can't if you don't. I mean, I've had plenty of conversations with family and friends that they didn't ask for, but I gave it to them anyway, and I think there's a place for that. But if you want to ask me what I think the best way to, to go about this is just having agreed upon, hey, I'd love to talk about assurance of salvation, and I'd love to talk about the gospel with you. And, uh, you know, I think some helpful, uh, you know, some helpful passages go to First John. I always talk about going to First John because First John is meant to be that, that book for assurance. That's why John wrote it. So I think going to First John and walking through First John, it's pretty short. And talking about the fruit of, you know, what it looks like to have assurance of faith. Uh, I think uh, there's a little book called The Gospel of Jesus Christ by Paul Washer, which if uh, you'd be willing to read through that, I think it lays out a really uh, good gospel. Uh, but at the end of the day, I think the conversation you'd have with him to say, listen, I'm concerned. Uh, you know, I don't see fruit of salvation in their life. And, I, and th- th- that should mean, right, that you it's not only that you you don't see the fruits of the Spirit in her life, but that she's walking in sin, she's unrepentant, right? Uh, there is no conviction of sin. There is not. There aren't holy affections, as, as we read uh, even uh, some of the later Puritans would say. I don't see holy affections. I don't see a desire for a love for God and for Christ and for his gospel and for his people. I mean, if you're saying those things, I think that's a big concern. And I think you should have a conversation. And I think if you call them out lovingly the way that I just did, and the way that I just you know brought up some things, and said, I just have concern. And uh, you pray before you meet, during the meeting, and after the meeting. Um, and you know, at the end of the day, you know, those who are false converts, I can imagine, uh, would feel judged and react badly uh, because they're making a profession that isn't isn't true. Uh, but I also know that there there are even Christians who are that are in sin and they are being convicted. And if somebody came to them and called them out 
they probably would not initially respond uh, positively, but we pray that through uh, some biblical counsel, through the leadership and the pastors of their church, that they would repent and uh, be uh, redemptively brought back into the church family. So I hope that helps you as well as you're thinking about having that hard conversation. Uh, the last question that I have here is, how specific does obedience get when someone is truly saved? I have family members who regularly use God's name as a cuss word and don't go to church, but claim that these things don't matter that much. They claim that it's legalistic to suggest they might not be saved. If they don't care about their language and don't want to go to church, is this evidence of an unregenerate heart? What would you say to them? And what I'd say to them is, what does the Bible say? Always go back to that. What does the Bible say? I know the Bible says that let no corrupt talk come out of your mouth, but only what is good as to build one another up that fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And so as, as I'm empowered by the Holy Spirit, and even the words that come out of my mouth, I think even as Jesus says, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And so even as, as, the, as uh, the, our, the wisdom, the poetry and the wisdom literature says that our, our, our heart, out of the, the depths of our heart, it, it dwells the spring of life. And so what is in it inevitably comes out. And I think particularly if you're talking about language, it's like there should be, uh, and I know in my life, even as a very young convert, the first thing that changed in my life immediately was language. You know, I, my language changed immediately and still is even as I'm, I'm growing in my faith. But that is the first thing in my life that it, when I was converted that changed. And uh, and then we have to ask those questions. You know, I don't go to church. Well, in our culture, people say, I don't go to church means I don't show up to a building. But we need to think. I think the indictment of saying I'm not going to church is says way more than saying I don't pick that time of the week to show up at a facility. When we're saying I don't go to church, church is the ecclesia, the called out. That's what the word church means in the Greek, ek and and ecclesia or kaleo for that word called. And so we're saying that I don't go to the called out. We're saying I do not prioritize my brothers and sisters in Christ. I do not prioritize God's family. I do not prioritize my part in God's family. I do not prioritize the family of God that he has called out of their sins and placed as a an outpost of his kingdom until Christ comes back. And you're, they're going to say, I don't want anything to do with that. And I'm going to say that's indicative of somebody who wants nothing to do with God's kingdom. Because if I want God's kingdom, I'm praying for God's kingdom. I want to find myself mingled in with God's kingdom as much as I can. And even as Hebrews teaches us, I believe in chapter 10, uh, that, that we uh, need not to neglect the gathering together as some do. Uh, but that we would spur one another on to love and good works and be doing this all the more as we see the day drawing near. And so I see somebody who doesn't have a love for the people of God uh, as not being able to, to, to be able to, I believe, uh, accurately confess the fact that they know uh, a God who would fill them with his own spirit, who would not also give him a love for the people that he has saved. And so, you know, that gives me great concern. Uh, and even the fact that they think it'd be legalistic to suggest that someone might not be saved just means that fundamentally there is a lack of knowledge of the Bible. Uh, and then on top of that, a lack of knowledge of uh, what it what it, what it takes and what it means to be saved. And then the application of salvation in, in the life of the believer, not only in eternity, but what it does to transform our lives here. And so, yeah, I think uh, I think that's it's hard. And that is a conversation I think you would do well to have with them. Uh, and, and that's what I would say to them. It's like, how can we say that we are part of a kingdom that we no, want no part in here? And if we don't want to be a part of that kingdom here, what makes us think we want to be a part of that kingdom there? Because God is going to give us a, a love. I mean, even in the book that I mentioned 
uh, earlier, probably to our life group leaders, but even to you guys. John MacArthur's uh, got a book, Saved Without a Doubt, that's a classic. And he even has this, uh, he has this chapter, 11 Tests from an Apostolic Expert, that goes into Scripture, goes into First John, and, and asks some questions that can help us understand that someone's saved. And so you, you uh, the, the, I'll just tell you the questions, right? Have you enjoyed fellowship with Christ and the Father? I mean, do you just find joy in being with Christ and the Father who saved you? Uh, are you sensitive to sin? I mean, when you sin, are you sensitive to it? Thirdly, do you obey God's word? Do you re- the fourth? Do you reject the evil world, or do you find yourself enjoying the world that you live, the evilness of the world, and find yourself frolicking in the sin of society, or do I reject the evilness of the world? Uh, do I eagerly await Christ's return? Is the next one? I mean, is it something I do not look forward to, or something I'm growing to look forward to more and more? The next question is, do you see a decreasing pattern of sin in your life? It's not do you see sinlessness, but do you see a pattern of sin in your life decreasing as you're being sanctified? And then uh, one that I just brought up to you, do you love other Christians? I mean, there's a real tell of the genuineness of one's conversion is, do you love the saints? Because Jesus loves the saints. The Father loves the saints. The Holy Spirit seals the saints. And so if I'm one of those, I'm going to love one another. Uh, the next one says, do you experience answered prayers? I think that's indicative uh, of, of somebody who has salvation is that there's an effectual, uh, there's an effectual prayer that I will pray and it, will, uh, it, it, it would be uh, powerful uh, to be uh, answered because of the God who saved me. Uh, another one is, do you experience the ministry of the Holy Spirit? Remember, we talk about the work of the Holy Spirit in the Gospel of John that says that he's going to come, he's going to convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. He's going to be a helper. He's going to guide uh, those kind of things. He's going to convict me of my sin. He's going he's to convict me towards righteousness. He's going to give me the comforter. He's going to be my comforter. He's going to be my helper. Uh, he's going to be the one who helps guide me through my life and empowering me to obedience. I mean, do we experience that ministry going on in your life from the third person of the triune Godhead? The next one that John MacArthur puts here that First John alludes to is, you, can you discern between spiritual truth and error? I think that's a big one because it's really the doctrine of illumination. That is, the Spirit illuminates the Word to us. You know, you may have talked to a lot of converts who said, you know, I was reading the Bible and I could never understand it. And then all of a sudden I was saved and I opened up the Bible and it just opened up and I understood it like I never understood it before. That's the doctrine of illumination. And that illumination is also going to cause you to be able to discern between the truth of God's word and error. And uh, the last one here is an indicator. Uh, have you suffered rejection because of your faith? I mean, uh, and, and the reason I think this is a good indicator and, and scripture does too in verse John is because it says, you know, if you're actually being faithful for a long enough period of time, it's uh, un- it, doubtless that you have been rejected verbally, relationally, because of the faith that you have in Christ. And so I think it's a good indicator because somebody who's never been rejected, uh, it, particularly paired up with all the rest of these tests uh, here that I've just gone over, uh, would say that maybe you've been walking with the world so much that there's nothing for people to reject because you look and act and sound just like them. And so you don't have to be a Christian for very long uh, to to have 
suffered some rejection for your faith? And so I think those are some really good questions that you can ask yourself that come from uh, one of the chapters from John MacArthur's book, Saved Without a Doubt, that are taken directly from uh, 1 John. And so I think those are some helpful uh, wisdom pieces of advice to give you. And I think uh, these were really great questions this week. I hope that was helpful for you, and I hope you guys enjoy uh, this um, this section of our Companies Equip podcast and I'd love to give you guys a couple of announcements that are coming up, and particularly as we get into uh, the application questions this week before announcements. I want you guys to spend some time. They're a little meaty. You're not going to be able to get through them as quickly as I think you have been able to do previously. I want you to take some time and think diligently about how you would answer these questions. But as far as announcements go, we have our men's fellowship coming up November the 11th from 9 a.m. to 11. This is our last men's fellowship of the year as we approach that uh, looming in large and I hope uh, outreach and evangelistic driven Christmas season that uh, you men would prioritize the men's fellowship and we get ready for the season that is upcoming here uh, coming up soon in December. We have our final Exploring Compass coming up on November 12th and the 19th. Registrations are open for that. I think I told our life group leaders earlier we have a, quite a few people uh, registered for Exploring Compass, 55 so far, and so I want to encourage you I'd love as many people to sign up for that as possible so we can uh, both increase the, the number of highly committed participants here at our church so that we can uh, begin and continue equipping the saints for the work of ministry. And put it on your calendars. Christmas at Compass is coming up. We have a slate of uh, events, of outreach events, of, of uh, services that we are going to provide and uh, partake in as a, as a church family to see more people reach for Christ and more people taught how to be like Christ and more people trained to serve Christ. And we have our first one coming up, our Women's Christmas Coffee on December the 2nd. The registration is necessary, but it's free. So if you want to be at the Women's Christmas Coffee, if you are a gal, that is, uh, go ahead and register for that online. If you want to be a table host, you can actually check that box there in the same registration that you use to register for the Women's Christmas Coffee on December the 2nd from 9 a.m. to 11 a.m. We have a, a biblical archaeologist coming in. Dr. Chris McKinney is coming to preach uh, first Sunday in December on the archaeological evidence of the Bethlehem account in the Gospel of Luke. I'm really excited about that. I hope you guys invite people uh, to be a part of that so we can see that the, the real tangible evidence that we have that Scripture teaches is true, and we find it actually there in the very dirt um, of, uh, of the land of Israel. We have our Christmas Christmas celebration coming up in December, our kids' Christmas choir, the serve team celebration for all those who have served with us this year, and then we have our Christmas Eve service that Sunday at 9 a.m. and 11. Uh, Christmas Eve is on a Sunday this year. I think it'll be a special time for us to gather as, uh, as a church family as we worship uh, Christ and as we uh, think about his birth and what that means for us in salvation history. So you see a whole lot of things coming up here. I want to encourage you to prioritize them. Let's make uh, this season an evangelistic season of inviting people to come and see uh, what God is doing at Compass, and that they would be able to draw near to God as they come and worship with us. All right, church, I love you guys. I'm thankful for you. I'm grateful to be your pastor, and I look forward to seeing you guys next week.